Our second Bible reading is Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. You'll see we've printed the previous passage as well there on page 13, but our passage today begins at verse 14, and I'll read from there. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it would be a great help to me if you could keep that passage within sight so that you can follow along easily during this sermon. Before we start, let's pray together for God's help. In Luke chapter 8, verse 8, Jesus says, Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, ears that are willing to listen to you. And would our lives be changed by the things that we hear from your word. For Jesus' sake. Amen. The main idea of a book titled Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell is that outstanding achievement in any field requires more than talent alone. Raw talent can only get a person so far, according to this book, Outliers. There are other factors involved. After looking at case studies from sports, art, business, Malcolm Gladwell keeps coming back to the same conclusion. A talented person needs the right kind of environment. The word Gladwell uses is ecology. It's only with the right kind of ecology or surrounding ecosystem that a person's talent can reach its full expression and usefulness. So rather than thinking of successful people as stars standing alone in the night sky, we'd be better off, according to outliers, viewing them as tall trees that have reached their height thanks to the supportive ecology they've experienced. Well, today's Bible passage isn't about talent being fulfilled, but it is about fulfillment. At the end of verse 19, Paul says he's been praying for the Christians receiving his letter to be filled with all the fullness of God, filled with all God's fullness. Well, that beats any other kind of fulfillment imaginable. 
shake a person who's been filled with all the fullness of God and what comes out? God, his influence, his way of seeing things, his character. The connection between the fulfillment in view in this passage and the fulfillment discussed in Outliers is that just as worldly talent gets fulfilled with a suitable surrounding ecosystem, so Christians are filled with God's fullness as a result of the people they're with, the people alongside them. We shouldn't think spiritual fulfillment is gained through lonely, isolated individualism. No, today's passage teaches us it's a collective thing. It comes through companionship with other believers who are also earnestly seeking the fulfillment God offers through Jesus. You can tell right away from verse 21 that Paul is thinking about Christians in community. In verse 21, Paul prays for God to be glorified in the church. That's where spiritual fulfillment is found, in the church. It's found among believers who recognize they belong to the body of Christ. Their body parts needing one another to function properly. In today's passage, we find two prayers for strength, and we're going to look at each prayer in turn in this sermon. What we'll see is that the collective spiritual fulfillment we've just been thinking about won't happen unless God strengthens his people for it. There are two prayers for strength in this passage. Let's start with the first prayer for strength. That's our first heading with one more to come. The first prayer for strength. Please look down with me to verse 16. Paul has already said that he's praying to the Father. And in verse 16, he tells his readers what he's praying for. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul wants his readers to be strengthened with God's power. He's saying to them, you're not strong enough. Later on, we'll find out more about these Christians who Paul is praying for. But for now, all we need to know is that they're regular Christians. They're not especially weak Christians. And so verse 16 has the same meaning for us that it had for them. We're not strong enough. We need to be strengthened with God's power. That's a humbling thought, isn't it? We like to think of ourselves as strong. If I put a dumbbell down there on the stage and said, I bet you can't lift it, I feel sure almost everyone in the church, not just the men, almost everyone in the church would have a go at trying to lift it if I put a dumbbell down there. Human beings like to think that we're strong, and not just strong physically. We like to think we have the... Now, am I doing something wrong to cause a little bit of um, feedback here? It's in hand, apparently. Thank you. Um, let's press on. We like to think we have the inner resourcefulness to cope with whatever life sends our way. 
We like to think we have inner strength as well as physical strength. Well, it's all a delusion. Our physical strength is limited. Our inner strength is limited. But it's a very common delusion. Even Bible-believing Christians who would gladly say that we're only saved because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we too can easily make the mistake of thinking we are strong enough just as we are. No need for extra strengthening power from God. We don't enjoy being told that we're weak, but that is what verse 16 is saying to me and to you. Paul prays for regular Christians to be strengthened with power by God's Spirit in their inner being. He wouldn't pray for that unless those regular Christians were lacking in strength. That's the humbling truth of verse 16. The inner being mentioned in that verse is your mind, your heart, your will, all those ingredients making up your inner person with its hopes, habits, dreams and desires. Without God given strength, that inner being, your inner person will lack power. Thankfully, God is able to meet our need for strength. Paul speaks in verse 16 of the riches of God's glory. God's glory is his majesty, which overflows from him to his creation in many different ways, including the giving of strength. Now, the strength Paul is praying for here isn't idle strength, strength for the sake of it, like a massive pickup truck that never leaves its parking space. No, Paul has a purpose in view for this strength. The strength he's asking for leads to a consequence, a so that, which we see in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. At first sight, that is a very puzzling thing for Paul to pray for. Because all Christians already have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, dwelling within us because of faith. The Holy Spirit is described in the New Testament as the Spirit of Christ because the Spirit has the same divine nature as Christ. So from the divine nature point of view, if the Spirit dwells within you and he dwells within all Christians, that's the same as having Christ dwell within you from the divine nature point of view. Same divine nature. Paul himself, in another of his letters, Colossians chapter 1, tells Christians that they have already, quote, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He tells them they already have Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians chapter 1. So I hope we all see why verse 17 is puzzling at first sight. Why is Paul praying for Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith when Christ is already dwelling in their hearts through faith by his Spirit. The answer to the puzzle lies in the difference between union with Christ and communion with Christ. Union with Christ is the linkage we have with him through faith. We're part of his body. He's the head, we're the body parts. It's because of our union with Christ that we already have his spirit dwelling within us. The spirit protects and preserves our union with Christ. The spirit keeps us following Jesus. That's union with Christ. It's unchanging. 
It's eternal. It's unbreakable. But communion with Christ is different. Communion is an old-fashioned word. We use it when we talk about the Lord's Supper. We call it Holy Communion, but that's just one particular use of the word. The main meaning of the word communion is relational interaction. Sharing and exchanging thoughts or feelings. If someone told you, this is slightly weird what I'm about to say, if someone told you they'd experienced communion with the dead, you'd know what they meant, wouldn't you? You'd get the idea. They're saying they've had some kind of relational interaction with a dead person. That is not recommended, by the way. Don't try that on Halloween tomorrow or on any other day of the year. But communion with Christ is recommended. He's alive. He was raised from the dead. He's living. He's at the right hand of God. And we can interact with him relationally. We can truly get in touch with him, our living Savior, as we hear his voice through the Bible and speak to him in prayer and obey his commands with his help. Union with Christ is always the same. Communion with Christ isn't always the same. It changes from one day to the next. We might have dry spells where we're focused on other things than Christ. And really those other things are pretty much ruling our lives, ruling our thoughts and hearts. And Christ is deep on the sidelines. But then we've had times when Christ is very near us. He has been in our thoughts and in our hearts. We've prayed to him. We've relished reading his word. We've obeyed him with his help throughout the day. Communion with Christ isn't always the same. It changes from one day to the next. And the dwelling within that Paul's talking about in verse 17 is what happens when communion with Christ is regularly taking place in your life. It's what happens when you walk with him consistently, day by day, and have that sense of being in touch with him through Bible reading and prayer. That's what Paul wants for the Christians he's praying for. He asks God to strengthen them so that Jesus won't be a stranger to them, but will instead be constantly present in their hearts, their inner persons. Let's press on to the second half of the sermon, the second prayer for strength. The second prayer for strength. It begins halfway through verse 17. Paul says he prays that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a lot to unpack there, but you can see where we're heading. The prayer ends up with fulfillment, fullness. There's plenty to unpack before we reach that end point, but it's good to know what the end point is. God wants Christians filled with his fullness. 
Paul's second prayer for strength will help us know how to get there. Now, I promised earlier that we'd come back to the question of who Paul is praying for, and that moment has come. Please look further up page 13 in the service program to verse 1 of chapter 3. In verse 1, Paul addresses Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians. He says in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. You Gentiles. He's addressing Gentiles. And then there's quite a long digression all the way down to verse 13 as Paul explains how he came to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But in verse 14, Paul gets back to where he was in verse 1. You can see that he repeats for this reason at the start of verse 14, which was what he said at the start of verse 1 before the long digression. So verse 14 picks up where Paul left off at the end of verse 1, which means Paul is still addressing Gentile believers. That's the important point. He's praying for that group in particular. But why? Why would he be praying for Gentiles in particular instead of for all Christians, both Gentile and Jewish? The clue is in that phrase, for this reason. When someone says for this reason, they're referring back to something they've just said. So we need to recall what Paul was saying at the end of chapter 2, and you might remember from a couple of weeks ago, that Paul was telling Gentile Christians they really do belong among God's people. At that time, as we saw two weeks ago, the global headquarters of Christianity was still in Jerusalem. The church's top-tier leaders were all Jewish. Even Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was Jewish. And all the earliest believers had been Jewish. And of course, Jesus himself was Jewish, the king of the Jews. You can see why Gentile Christians at that time might have wondered whether they truly belonged among God's people. And so, back in chapter 2, verse 19, Paul told Gentile Christians, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Fellow citizens with the saints. That background, you Gentiles are fellow citizens with the saints, is still in play in verses 17 and 18 as Paul prays for those same Gentile Christians. He prays that you, you Gentile Christians, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Paul's praying for togetherness among groups of Christians that were naturally divided. He's praying for mutual comprehension of the far-reaching dimensions of God's loving plan, a plan that stretches across the globe to all nations. He wants the Gentile Christians to comprehend, to grasp, alongside the Jewish Christians, the breadth and length and height and depth of God's loving plan. 
Now, the problem Paul was tackling was essentially the problem of division in the church. At that time, it was mainly a Gentile-Jewish division that was the problem. But the problem of division in the church didn't disappear when that particular division became less of a problem. Sadly, we can all think of similar divisions in the church closer to us in time and place. It's not hard to think of Christians who belong to separate groupings, separate tribes that fail to have this together enjoyment of God's plan that Paul is talking about. As a British Christian, I find myself thinking of the division in the church caused by social class. In Britain, social class is a big deal. It's more than just are you wealthy, are you poor? It's also marked out by the way you speak. Do you have a regional accent or a more neutral accent? Along with many other markers that separate people into their different classes. And what you'll find if you visit British churches, Bible-believing, Jesus-following, gospel-preaching British churches, what you'll find is that they are usually either a church for posh people or a church for poorer people, working-class people. That's not always the case, praise God, but I'm afraid to say it is often the case. It's a common phenomenon. Wouldn't you agree that if the Apostle Paul was living in Britain today, he'd be praying for the richer Christians to comprehend with the working-class Christians the dimensions of God's plan? Over here in America, if we went back in time to the Deep South, within living memory, 70 years ago, we'd find churches sharply divided along racial lines, white churches and black churches. So far as I know, there were very few, if any, interracial churches in the Deep South 70 years ago. The division was plain to see. Wouldn't you agree that if the Apostle Paul had lived in the Deep South 70 years ago, he'd be praying for the white Christians and the black Christians to comprehend with one another the dimensions of God's loving plan. It's fair to say that what I've just been saying is kind of trendy. It's fashionable for Christians these days to talk about things such as overcoming division and overcoming um, racial division with interracial harmony. But I hope you see that I'm really not preaching these things because they're trendy. I'm preaching them because they are here in the text of God's Word. Paul pleads with God for the Gentiles who he's had in view ever since verse 1 to comprehend with all the saints, with the Jewish believers, the breadth and length and height and depth. He's literally on his knees, he says in verse 14, which at that time was actually an unusual posture for prayer. It was how people prayed when they were praying with special intensity. This really mattered to Paul. And let's remember, Paul was Jesus' representative. Paul's words in this letter are God-breathed scripture. Well, what happens when this prayer is answered? What happens when naturally divided groups rejoice together in God's globe-spanning plan? Paul tells us in verse 19. 
It might look like a new prayer request, but it's best understood as the outcome of what Paul's just been praying for. Everything in verse 19 follows on from the big prayer request in verse 18. If verse 18 happens, that mutual grasping of God's plan, then verse 19 will happen. They'll know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and they'll be filled with all the fullness of God. Here's how the 20th century Christian leader John Stott explains the point in his commentary on the book of Ephesians. Slightly old-fashioned language ahead. He says, The isolated Christian can indeed know something of the love of Jesus, but his grasp of it is bound to be limited by his limited experience. It needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. All the saints together, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old, black and white, with all their varied backgrounds and experiences. I'll read the second half of that, that quote again. It needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. All the saints together, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old, black and white, with all their varied backgrounds and experiences. If that book, Outliers, is correct, talent is fulfilled when a talented person has a good surrounding ecosystem. Talent is fulfilled when a suitable group is in place around a person. And that's how it is with Christians. We're filled with all the fullness of God. We have that kind of fulfillment, the best kind of fulfillment possible, when we're with other believers. When we're going through life with them. And not just those believers who look like us and talk like us and have the same kind of education, but also believers who we'd never spend time with if they weren't Christians. That's the ecosystem that will help us know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so we'll be filled with all the fullness of God. When I think of the love of Christ, the love of God, my mind turns to the parable of the prodigal son, where the father in the parable represents God, and the prodigal son represents any sinner, any wrongdoer, returning to God through faith in Jesus. And you'll remember from the story, the father is waiting with open arms, and as that son who had previously rejected his father so cruelly and lived so badly, returns to the father's home, father runs towards him and grasps him in his arms and embraces him and hugs him. That is the love of God for us. And we don't move on from that. That's one of the points of the parable. That's the problem with the older son. He thinks he's moved on from that to a place where he has to earn God's love through his works, through his obedience. No, we don't move on from God's embrace as his people. That's where we are in his loving arms.
And if you're listening today as someone who's not yet following Jesus, those arms are open for you. You too can come to them. You need to come to them. You need to claim this salvation that God offers through Jesus, through his death, which pays the price for sin, through his resurrection. You need to say yes, please, to that salvation, that eternal life offer. It's not automatic, but God wants you to say yes, please. His arms are open. Come to him if you haven't already. Now, uh, someone might well say to me, Bernard, I'm looking around at Good Shepherd Anglican Church and I see people who seem to be pretty similar to one another. There's not a lot of evidence here of divided groups being bridged. I'm not sure that's entirely fair. Praise God. There are some natural divisions represented among us. I don't think we'd all be spending time with one another if we weren't Christians. We do have at least three different ethnicities represented among us, different ages and different social backgrounds. And so the passage teaches us not to stick to our own subgroup within Good Shepherd. Subgroups could easily, easily develop within Good Shepherd where the people most like one another spend time with those people and um, leave the others to one side. This passage teaches us not to become cliquey in that way within our church, but to reach out eagerly to the people most different from us within our church. The passage also teaches us to be open to people joining our church who might be very different from us, culturally speaking. Perhaps God has led us to study Ephesians because he's planning to bring people to us who don't fit in culturally and he wants us to welcome them properly. That would be wonderful if that happens. We should praise God if that happens because the experience of grasping alongside those very different people, the breadth and length and height and depth of God's plan will lead us into fresh knowledge of Christ's love and fresh fullness fresh fulfillment with all the fullness of God. There's another reason why we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much about our relative sameness here at Good Shepherd. In the New Testament, the church is either the, the local church, like Good Shepherd Anglican Church, or it's the universal church made up of all believers everywhere. And in this passage, Paul has the universal church mostly in view. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. That's universal church language rather than local church language. So Paul isn't saying that each local church should have every different natural division represented within that local church. That's unrealistic in many parts of the world. Instead, he's saying that the people within each local church should be 
open to receiving what people in other churches have to offer. They should strive for, seek out this mutual grasping of the length and breadth and height and depth of God's plan. So perhaps if we could go back 70 years to the Deep South, it wouldn't be right for us to say to the black pastors and the white pastors, integrate your churches. That wouldn't be realistic if we went back in time to that time and place. Instead, perhaps a better application of this passage would be to say to the black pastors and the white pastors, why not have one service a year where you worship God together? An outdoor service, perhaps, or a service in a, in a big location in the town. Bring both your churches together as one to grasp together the dimensions of God's loving plan. Have the African-American pastor preach one year, the white pastor preach the next year, and so on. Just once a year, gather together and rejoice in those dimensions. Bridging divisions is hard. Paul knows how hard we find it to bridge them, and that's why both of these prayers are prayers for strength. The first prayer is a prayer for the inner strength needed for rich communion with Christ. The second prayer is for those inwardly strengthened Christians who have been rooted and grounded in Christ's love and who are therefore well positioned for the next stage. The second prayer for that next stage is for those inwardly strengthened Christians to have still more strength so that they can reach out across the divide to rejoice in God's love alongside people very different from themselves. Two prayers for strength. And the God who Paul is praying to is able to answer them. He's the God of verse 20 who is able, Paul says, to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He is able to strengthen us in these ways. Let's pray to him for strength now. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge our weakness before you. We do find it hard to bridge these natural divisions we find it much easier to spend time with Christians who are just like us. And so we pray for strength. Strength for rich communion with your son Jesus. And strength to reach out across the divide to believers who are not like us. Help us to do it. That we may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may know more of that love and that we may be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. Amen.